0: Welcome to Travel Stories with your hosts, Trevor Mountcastle and Tom Kemp. This week, we're talking with Brander, who is a personal friend and a fellow Av Geek, a commercial pilot, a Navy reservist, and gosh, you probably have a couple other really amazing titles as well. How are you today?
1: I'm doing well. It's just a privilege to join both of you, uh, Tom and Trevor. I've been a big fan of your podcast. We've known each other for six or seven years now, so it's really just an honor to be on with you.
0: The honor is ours.
2: It's such a pleasure. I mean, it's been actually a couple of years, I think, since we've had a really decent conversation, so it's wonderful that we get to do it on this podcast.
0: Yeah, absolutely, and this is a fun one for us as well because uh, we went out to the to the Myelinomics community on the Patreon side, and we actually had the opportunity to ask a bunch of or to uh, solicit questions for you. Hopefully, we'll get to a bunch of them, but we had a lot of interest just in your perspective, and I think that's a pretty cool experience. Expect Um, to be peppered with lots of questions. So before we jump into that, could you share a little bit more of your background and just sort of what you'd like the audience to sort of understand as a baseline as we kind of walk through some of these questions and some of your uh, travel stories? Sure, absolutely.
1: So I am one of you is kind of how I look at this. I started off and I still very much am a points and miles nerd. I still love a great premium cabin redemption, I love a great five-star, you know, hotel redemption and you know, I have a job as a pilot but i'm still very much in the points and miles community i started out about 20 years doing mileage runs and credit card churning and everything when i was in college and you know that continues to this day so even though i do fly full time for both the navy and the airlines I'm still very much involved and very much interested in points and miles, which is kind of interesting because a lot of the pilots I fly with look at me like I'm crazy, uh, just like (laughs) the rest of us in this community, even though I'm flying the plane. But I started out, I went to the Naval Academy while I was in college. I was doing mileage runs on the one or two weekends we were allowed away you know, every semester and redeeming those miles every summer for a nice trip. Wound up not expecting to be a pilot, honestly. I had a private pilot license, but I really wanted to be a submariner when I went to the Naval Academy. And over the summertime, we get to do different cruises, not a Tom Kim kind of cruise, but a Navy cruise. (laughs) And uh, I very quickly found out that the submarine community is probably not for me, having done a submarine cruise. So I kind of reassessed, flying seemed to make a lot of sense. I already knew how to do it. I loved it. So luckily I was able to select naval aviation out of the academy. Went to Georgetown for a quick master's degree in security policy and then I was off to Pensacola to navy aviation training at the Cradle of Navy Aviation. Ended up selecting to fly the EP-3 which is a not a very well-known plane in the navy but it's a signals reconnaissance aircraft. So I did that for a number of years out of Washington state, flew mainly reconnaissance missions in the western Pacific but also about 500 hours of combat flight time over Afghanistan and Iraq. After a few years of doing that, I transitioned to some staff work in Washington, D.C., which was really a great opportunity to take the political science background that I always had an interest in and in my master's degree and initially worked at an organization that was in charge of all the foreign military sales or the weapons sales for the Navy, the Marine Corps, and the Coast Guard to our partners overseas. So I got to travel the world
0: doing that. Is that the navy International program Office nipo it is
1: absolutely it's a uh, NIPO down in the Navy Yard, so did that for a number of years and then was selected to work for the Secretary of the Navy, organizing his international travel, so got to you know fly around the world with him for a couple of years as well. After that time, I decided that I wanted to transition back to flying, which is something I really missed, so was able to transition to the Navy reserves. Got to fly the C-130, first out of Andrews Air Force Base, Joint Base Andrews, and then up to uh, McGuire, Joint Base McGuire. Around the same time, I was fortunate enough to get hired by a couple of legacy airlines and uh, wound up at my current airline uh, where I'm flying the 757 and 767, and I've been there for almost five years now. On the reserve side, I was very fortunate to get selected for aviation command. Uh, To me, the pinnacle of a naval aviator's career is getting to command a squadron. And I'm very lucky to be able to do that as a reservist. So I helped to run a squadron, a C-130 cargo squadron down in New Orleans, Louisiana. And I liken it to probably, it's essentially running a small cargo airline. We've got four aircraft couple hundred personnel between the maintainers the operators the pilots the flight engineers the load masters the administrative personnel and four planes that are flying you know 24/7 around the world to meet short notice navy logistics air logistics requirements so I do that that's one of my jobs and then I still fly uh, for the airlines out of Washington DC as well
0: that's incredible. And for our listeners, this is actually really informative, I think, for Tom and I, because we don't really talk too much about your Navy side. So kind of understanding the progression of your career and everything is, I always find that interesting. Maybe it's just, you know, the geek in me, but that's quite the progression. Yep. Call, call it, me impressed. Yeah, 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 exactly. Command is always one of those, you know, just as you said, the pinnacle of a career. If I could circle back to the craziness part, the mile and Point side, obviously, you're flying a whole lot. You're staying in hotels. Those hotels are being paid, you know, for the majority, I would imagine, by the airline. Do you get any sort of status recognition? Do you get any sort of points? Is there a benefit there, or is that more of kind of like a, a downside?
1: It's interesting. It's about 50 50. So I actually bid some of my airline trips specifically around the layover hotels that give us points and give us stay credit. So I'm um, probably one of the few people who does it, but again, it's part of the uh, being the points and miles geek uh, in the airline world. So I know exactly which hotels actually give us the credit, and um, some of them treat us very well, just like we're paying, you know, customer. Others, because the airline is paying a very, very discounted rate, uh, have no desire to recognize our hotel status.
0: Now, is that unique to particular hotel chains, or is it fairly unique or fairly divided? Not chain specific, but unique hotel specific.
1: It seems to be up to the individual property. We stay at a lot of different bond boy properties, whether they're Marriott's or Weston's or Sheraton's. And it really depends on the individual property whether they're going to honor, you know, either the state credit or provide us with other benefits.
2: That's interesting it probably just goes to the each individual properties you know kind of way that they have a little bit of independence in the way that they market and the, the way they operate their hotels despite the fact that they're part of this huge gigantic chain
1: yeah and we have some great long lasting relationships with some of these hotels that for example there was one Sheraton New Europe I was staying at. We've stayed there for 40 years, the same hotel as a company. So they had a big 40 year anniversary and invited everybody, all the crew members who were staying to participate in that. And I thought that was pretty neat. That They're is also pretty one of the incredible. hotels that you know treats us pretty good and does above and beyond what they have to do.
0: That's incredible. That's incredible. So you sort of implied this, but let's talk a little bit more. So you plan the flights that you bid on a monthly basis, I think you mentioned and you said that you plan in some cases based on the hotels that'll give you the status. What other factors do you play in? Obviously, if you're flying 767s and 757s, you're limited to those routes. But I have to imagine that if you're flying international a fair bit, you're fairly senior. So you've got a little bit more latitude and sort of what you can bid. And actually, I don't know what the term is for winning what you bid. <laughs> but, you know, sort of, you know, walk us through a little bit of that approach if you could.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So one of the things I like about my fleet is there's incredible diversity of flying between the 757 and 767 flying. There's a decent amount of domestic trips, and then there's some European trips, South American trips, and Hawaiian trips. So there's usually something for everything, which means my seniority tends to go a little bit further than it might go on a more senior, you know, a 777 or eight fleet, where there's just not that much trip diversity. Kind of big picture, pilots chase different things. So there are plenty of pilots who just chase money and they want to fly the biggest planes, which tend to earn the most amount of money. Interestingly, with my fleet, the 757 and 767, we have three different pay rates depending on which aircraft we're flying. So some pilots are going to chase flying a 767-400 simply because that pays just as much as a triple or seven or seven eight would pay, whereas the 75 really pays closer to what a 737 would pay. Other pilots like efficiency. They want to work the most amount in the least amount of time. They'll pack their trips up so that they can, you know, do two trips back to back. And like I said, all they care is about efficiency. And then the third group, which is kind of where I fall under is quality of life. For me, I do enough work with the Navy that when I'm flying for the airline, I just want to enjoy my life. I'm not trying to fly as much as I possibly can. And that's where the layover hotels, layover destinations come in. There are a couple of cities in Europe, i I, like very much. So I tend to bid those cities more. I love Switzerland. So that's kind of my standing bid. I'll take a Geneva or Zurich any day. Uh, I love to go hiking. I love the outdoors. So to me, that's kind of why I like uh, those particular trips in addition to the hotels and the benefits.
2: Yeah, it's nice not to have to pay for a hotel in Switzerland.
0: It is. Yes. Oh, yeah. That's, that's, that's a big difference.
2: Yeah. So I could, I could definitely understand that. I had a question. You know, so what does a typical international trip look like for you? Just kind of curious.
1: Yeah. For me, I generally fly about a trip to Europe every single week. I'll do usually about four trips a month. The Europe trips are typically either three or four day trips. Again, I. More about quality of life, the four-day trips pay a little bit more, but they're not that efficient. So a lot of people don't like the four-day trips. But for me, I'd much prefer a longer layover, especially in a nice you know, hotel in Europe. So I will try to bid the four-day trips when they're available. And if not, it's the standard three-day trip. But we typically, you know, we leave the East Coast in the evening time. So depending on what position I'm in, because I can either bid the flying position or I can bid the uh, relief pilot position. That kind of determines my nap schedule the day we depart. We get to the airport about 90 minutes uh, beforehand to brief. We call dispatch. We look over all the flight paperwork. We look over all the maintenance documents on the aircraft, and we aim to get to the gate about an hour before departure to complete all our pre-flight obligations. Hopefully, we depart on time. Generally, flying over to Europe's pretty easy for me on the body. It's not really a red eye because we leave at 5 or 6 p.m. You're landing, it's only 1 a.m. or 2 a.m. body clock. So I find it physically not as bad as doing, for example, a South America trip where it's 10 hours overnight both ways. We get into Europe in the morning time. If it's a three-day trip, we typically have a 26, 27-hour layover. So we're picked up either at the plane or we go through customs uh, with the passengers at the airport and picked up at the curb. We get to our our hotel and then it's kind of up to each pilot what they want to do. I generally don't nap more than an hour or two. I try to just acclimate myself to European time and try to be active throughout the day so that I can naturally be uh, more tired in the evening. We typically uh, have dinner together. It's not a requirement, but generally we have the same kind of restaurants that we like. So I'll make a dinner reservation most places. If the other pilots want to join, that's great. And then the next day we uh, get picked up again about 90 minutes before departure, get to the airport, go through all of our uh, same procedures, talking to dis- dispatch, reviewing the flight documents, and then depart Europe. And we're back on the East Coast, usually in the uh, afternoon to early evening time frame.
0: Nice. Sounds interesting. My gosh, I love how succinctly you just described all that. (laughs) I mean, you could have literally been telling us the flight path you were going to (laughs) take. It's interesting that you guys in some cases get picked up right at the plane versus uh, having to go through customs, you know, the normal way. Is that unique to particular destinations or is that anything in particular that you can share?
1: It just depends on the airport, different procedures, depending on which airport you're at. Most of the time we go through the terminal, we clear customs there, but uh certain locations, London, for example, will get picked up plane side and get driven you know right to the hotel from the tarmac
2: so you know Trevor mentioned flight plans. How often does that get affected by weather or turbulence quite
1: a bit it's for example, last week, I did two back to back Geneva trips, so I did a four day Geneva trip immediately followed by a three day Geneva trip. So it's kind of interesting. The exact same flights only spaced out a couple of days apart. And Mm -hmm. we were on completely different routings just because of the forecast turbulence. Just the jet stream is constantly shifting. So it really varies day to day to day on which tracks they're using. And, for example, the North Atlantic track system. We have these tracks that aren't necessarily defined by a specific set, latitude and longitudes, but they vary every single day. New tracks will be published. So even going the same destination one day to the next day, the tracks are going to be completely different depending on the weather.
0: You know, that's an interesting observation too, perhaps not something that you've flown as a pilot, but... As a passenger, I know that I've flown a couple of times on that Etihad flight from Dulles to Abu Dhabi. And in some cases, it feels like you get up to New York, you hang a hard right, and instead of that great circle approach, you're going like straight across. You go over Iberia, you fly over the Med, hang a hard right over Egypt, kind of a hard left to scoot over to Abu Dhabi. And I guess in my head, I always thought that that was, you know, more a factor of tailwind. But are there other things that kind of factor into that?
1: Yeah, there are quite a bit of things that could factor into it. In addition to the winds, forecast turbulence, there could be either space weather, solar weather, or even ozone issues that could impact that, plus volcanoes, all sorts oh, of yeah. uh, different things.
0: The Icelandic volcano that none of us can actually describe
1: <laughs> <Yep>. or say. <laughs> so- I-, I keep hoping that that thing will go off while I'm in Europe because uh, that could be <laughs> a very advantageous but-
0: <laughs> that sounds like that could be fun, sort of you know teasing that out a little bit more. does turbulence ever phase you from a pilot's perspective or also you know being in the back of the plane or hopefully not too far back in the plane as a passenger?
1: from a pilot's perspective, no, I mean I have confidence in the structure of the plane that I'm not worried that anything structurally is going to happen with turbulence. I'll tell you, my time in the Navy, sometimes having to fly high-priority missions, I've gone through some pretty horrendous weather, typhoons, hurricanes, that we just have to go through, and I have confidence in the aircraft. What does phase me with turbulence is just the potential for injury, especially with our flight attendants. I would like to get through a whole career without ever having a flight attendant seriously injured due to turbulence, but every single year, we have flight attendants who are injured. So... I try to make the seatbelt sign mean something because if the sign is on for three hours, it becomes meaningless. But at the same time, I do want to try to avoid passenger and flight attendant injuries. So one you know, technique that I do, I always hack the clock and start a stopwatch as soon as the seatbelt sign comes on, just to remind me that at some point I need to reassess and we can discuss you know, about turning it off. I will say that the technology we have now has also gotten even in the last four or five years that I've been an airline pilot, significantly better when it comes to predictive turbulence. We have an app now that we have on all of our iPads that communicates with all the other iPads on all the other pilot you know, iPads on different aircraft. And it's incredible how accurate it can be to forecast turbulence down to we get a notification, two minutes from now, you're going to have turbulence. And more times than not, two minutes from now, we have turbulence. So my goal is just to try to keep the uh, the rest of the crew and the passengers safe and hopefully have the seatbelt sign mean something, but I don't fear turbulence is going to damage the aircraft, if that makes sense.
2: You, you know, that's really reassuring, you know, that the technology has kind of improved. I guess it's probably a function of connectivity and kind of app ubiquity instead of maybe AI or forecasting, right? It just sounds like it's just because it's nice to have all those different data points, you know, from all those planes that are going f- to, I guess, that are flying in front of you, right?
1: Yeah, it's really an ingenious solution. They're able to monitor the movement of all these individual iPads, hundreds of them over the North Atlantic, and they can all communicate and kind of come up with a picture that's pretty accurate, much better than weather forecasting.
0: It's interesting because I remember back when, was it Channel 9 or Channel 13, used to be an option on United, used to fly them Pretty frequently, and it was always interesting listening to that because you'd hear the different pilots radioing air traffic and excuse me, air traffic control and asking, How's the ride at this many feet or this many thousand feet? or hearing air traffic control sort of say, Hey, you know, I'm hearing that it, it calms down in another 10 minutes or something to that effect. And to hear that technology has evolved in such an automated way is. Is pretty cool. It's reassuring as a passenger, you know, to hear that there's
2: that kind of innovation happening, you know, and that ultimately, you know, I know it's also a safety thing
0: for the staff, but, you know, it's a comfort for the passengers too. Yeah. And that idea of the stopwatch, I don't know that I get the feeling that most pilots do that.
1: It can be frustrating. I was flying, uh, I won't say what airline, but out of Korea two weeks ago, and the seatbelt sign was on for three hours. We were well past Japan before the sign was ever turned off flying uh, to the U.S. And it's just meaningless at that point. I mean, people Mm -hmm, are mm going to disregard it and it increases injury. So, you know, I'm fortunate a lot of the captains I fly with, they feel the same way. Make the sign mean something. Don't Mm -hmm. leave it on forever just to, you know, try to cover yourself if something happens because it's self-defeating.
2: You know, I think you've got a kind of a unique experience because, you know, you've got, you know, kind of that both sides of the fence kind of perspective, seeing how you were, you know, such a big miles and points nerd and, and AV geek. and, And, and obviously now you're a pilot as well. I was just curious, you know, has, you know, your knowledge that you now have as a pilot, has that informed your travel style? Has it changed somewhat since you've gotten into commercial aviation?
1: I think there's some aspects that it certainly has. I'm able to recover from jet lag a little bit easier. I think I plan out even when I'm traveling as a passenger for long haul flights on awards and such. I plan, you know, my sleep schedule much like I would if I was operating the flight. So I feel I'm just better rested when I get to the destination.
0: So I want to try to pivot a little bit. We'll continue to kind of pivot back and forth from the Commercial side to the military side. Obviously, we know that I think active duty, I don't know if reservists get the annual fees waived on credit cards, but what are some of the things that as a reservist you leverage from a miles and points perspective that perhaps other reservists or active duty listeners might be able to learn from?
1: Sure. Well, SCRA, the Service Members Civil Relief Act, still applies to reservists just as much as it does to active duty. The catch is that you need to be on orders for 30 days or more. So as a reservist there's at least one set of 30-day orders that I'm taking every single year and during that time I rehack my SCRA benefits with you know all the credit card agencies and let them know that I'm back on orders and generally then that satisfies it for the following year as far as other items that I leverage I'm fortunate enough to be senior enough in my squadron that I can kind of pick the trips that I want to fly for the navy so generally I like to go to the western pacific those also tend to be the trips that have the highest government contract airfares. So generally uh, I can make 1K on United just by booking the contract fares that I know are going to be more expensive to the destinations that you know I want to go fly from. So I pretty much only will pick trips to Tokyo, trips to Guam for the Navy and we have frequently, you know every month we've got a couple of those. So those are the trips that I tend to target uh with the Navy to help just the status That I'm able to earn.
2: Have you ever flown the Island Hopper?
1: I have not flown the Island Hopper on United. That's a bucketless item still because I'm a complete flight nerd still, and I have my flight memory map, and it just would look so much better if it was filled in with the Island Hopper. But that being said, I've pretty much flown to every single one of those islands on the C-130. It's kind of fascinating how (laughs) nothing has changed in 50 years of naval aviation when it comes to how we operate the C-130 in the Pacific, we still have to hop from island to island to island, just like we did in the 40s and the 50s. So uh, for example, I've got a trip next week leaving Honolulu. So I'm going to fly to Honolulu, pick up a C-130 in Honolulu. We're going to hop to Majuro. Then we're going to hop to Guam. And then on the way back, we're going to go to Wake Island. Then we're going to go back to Hawaii. So nothing has really changed. So I've done my <laughs> own version of the Island Hopper, but I would still really like to fly the, the actual Island Hopper at some point.
2: Definitely on my bucket list too. I haven't made it quite there yet. I have made it to Guam, but none of those other islands really, other than maybe Hawaii. You know,
0: that makes three of us that haven't done the Island Hopper. We, we might do, do it together.
1: together. Yeah. yeah. I, I think know. that
0: would be fun let's make a date. (laughs) (laughs) There we go. So as we're sort of, you know, hopping about different topics, you mentioned that you had your private pilot's license, I suppose, before you got into the academy or while you're in the academy. What is your experience kind of talking with other commercial pilots as far as kind of how they made it to become a commercial pilot? Just because it seems to me like growing up, I think we all knew the majority or at least the majority of pilots I knew growing up, I should say. My parents had tons of friends in fact we had a, a close family friend who would literally change and bid his flights when we would go to Bermuda so he would be you know flying our flights most of them were you know either air force or, or naval aviators retired of course it seems like there's more folks that are kind of coming at it without doing that military service prior what's your perspective on how those folks sort of attain to the main line obviously knowing that there's that interim regional step that seems to sort of help them get greater flight hours. And if I'm getting any of this stuff wrong, please correct me.
1: (laughs) No, you're pretty much spot on. Traditionally, there have been two ways to get to a a major carrier, whether it's a legacy carrier like American Delta United or a carrier like FedEx or UPS. There's either the military track where you do a full military commitment, which is for pilots now 10 plus years or there's the civilian route where you start off, you know, getting your pilot's licenses, you usually do some flight instructing, then you wind up at a regional airline for 5 10 years, and then you get on with a major airline. But things are changing rapidly uh, just due to the need for pilots now. It's incredible that you know legacy carriers are hiring 2,000 plus pilots a year. We've really never seen that before. So I would say the military is still very much a viable way to get to the legacy airlines, but it's certainly not going to be the quickest. And I would also say if military service is not something that you feel deeply called to, it's probably not the best way. There are quicker ways to do it. And it's a significant commitment and significant sacrifice to be a military pilot. So if you're just looking for the quickest on-ramp to get to a large airline, military might not be the best way to do that. But what I will say is the military flight training is fantastic. The product that even the Air Force, but uh, the product the Navy or the Air Force <laughs> provides and produces is really incredible. The experience that you get over a short amount of time, it's really hard to compare that to anything else that's out there.
2: Yeah. I mean, it's interesting how the kind of the market forces have kind of changed those pathways a little bit, right? I mean, I think there's just that such that overwhelming need now to kind of staff up these airlines and and I guess the the non military pathways have, have just, I guess, just grown quite a bit just to match with the market demands, I guess.
1: It's incredible. Yeah. I was usually, I was in my mid 30s when I got hired by the two legacy airlines that I got hired by. But now we have young pilots in their early 20s who are coming on to United, coming on to Delta, coming on to American at just such an incredible age. And to think of the longevity they're going to have 40 plus years. Wow. It's, yeah. Uh, almost impossible to fathom that.
2: That's probably something that's a sign
0: of these times, not what you'd seen in in past ages, right?
1: Absolutely, yeah.
0: Yeah, it's interesting because, you know, obviously they're also coming from a a completely different background. Well, maybe not completely, but a meaningfully different background, right? Your experience flying combat operations in the sandbox is probably something that informed how you fly Through bad weather or bad turbulence, I would imagine that they might have attained similar experience just going through that, you know, those crazy winds or other sort of things. Not to say that they have any less experience, just they come to it from a little bit different background of experience.
1: They do. It's just different experience. I'll tell you, as a military pilot, when I first got to the airlines, I was kind of lost at. how we get to a gate, how do we get off a gate? To me, you know, Chicago O'Hare, the first couple of times I operated out of that, my, my head was on fire because to me, it's just mass organized chaos. And to a regional <laughs> pilot who's probably done that for 10 years, it was completely normal.
0: You know, that's a really interesting experience because I'd imagine that, you know, military bases, it's it's probably much, much, much cleaner, much clearer. You, you know, you're not dealing with, with waiting on the jetway operator or somebody to push you back, perhaps. Exactly. <laughs> So just kind of a fun question. And I do this, I say this, this is another question that we got from our listeners, but I include it because I think there's a bunch of random conversation about it for lack of a better way of saying it with this whole UFO thing. I don't know. It seems like it gets in the news every few years. Do you see, I mean, obviously you've probably seen the Northern Lights more beautiful than any of us. I had the chance to see them on an Emirates flight and it was something that I will never forget. But do you see any other kind of weird things that make you think that, you know, something funky is going on?
1: I've never seen anything that made me think, well, that's a UFO. I have seen some things that I could imagine other people could interpret as being otherworldly. One thing that comes to mind, the Starlink satellite constellations, Oh, Uh, depending on the lighting and the inclination, and especially how long they've been in orbit, because they tend to separate over time. But if they're really close together, it looks incredible. It looks like something out of this world when you see it initially. But then once you kind of know what it is, it makes sense.
2: Got to love those low-Earth orbiting uh, satellites.
1: Yep. Shooting stars, I see those all the time. The northern lights, sometimes they can just be so bright, so dynamic. You can literally see them move as you're flying. It's, It's really quite a sight.
0: Having had the opportunity because of amazing pilots to have occasionally sat in the cockpit and just sort of envisioning how that looks when you're up in the air. Obviously, I've only been on the ground. I mean, I just have to believe that you get to see things that very few people get the opportunity to witness.
1: And that's still one of my favorite things about flying, just the sunset views, the sunrise. When you get to see the moon rise over the ocean and it just just so massive as it comes up over the horizon. It's just the things you get to see are incredible.
0: So as we kind of go down that path, you know, obviously you've talked about the most amazing things of being a pilot, and I think that's just absolutely awesome. Anything that's your least favorite? And is it different? Would your answer be different when speaking from a naval aviator perspective or commercial pilot perspective?
1: Yeah, I think it would be different. The Navy has different challenges than what I face in the uh, commercial airlines, For me, the C-130, for example, it's known to break quite a lot. It's known to have a lot of malfunctions. There's a good chance I'll go my entire airline career without having an engine failure in flight. I probably average an engine failure every year, you know, flying a C-130. So... I'm fortunate that the Navy training that I've received has really prepared me well, but it can be a challenge just doing the maintenance aspect and the uh sometimes the unreliability The parts system is not the best just getting resupplied it's not uncommon to be broken for a week somewhere where that wouldn't happen at the airlines. You would be fixed pretty quickly if you broke. but as far as the airline side, the least favorite thing, I just have to say some of the inefficient aerospace infrastructure we have in this country. Can be challenging at times. Whether it's uh, at Dulles, you know, the <laughs> immigration arrival facilities there at those terminals that should have been torn down years ago, decades ago. Uh, you know, the temporary, almost like uh, trailers that are still substituting for terminals at Newark, for example. That airline doesn't function if there's a cloud. You know, within fifty miles of it. Just some of the uh, <laughs> very inefficient ways are. Transportation infrastructure exists in the U.S. that I don't find elsewhere. I was thinking last year. I remember I was in Tokyo, uh, flying up to Hokkaido, Sapporo, and it was the outskirts of this typhoon was you know approaching Tokyo, and it was Haneda. It was six p.m. the evening. It was kind of rush hour. All these planes getting off, and we had forty-five, fifty knot winds, and the airport was functioning like nothing was happening. I mean, every third plane was going around, but they were still launching planes every 60 seconds. It was just, it was beautiful. It was just a piece of beauty. And I just can't imagine anything like that happening in Newark or Washington or really any airport in the U.S. The whole place would just be shut down for hours.
0: Yeah, it's amazing how little it takes to bring our infrastructure or, you know, the overall machine to its knees. Is
2: the FAA still the biggest consumer of vacuum tubes? <laughs> I don't know or, if any or, of us will know that one. Maybe they still have some IBM XTs, you know, sitting in the warehouse. They get, you know, they got those stockpiled pretty well. I heard. Anyway. Most often it's my jokes that fall. I know. Oh, okay. What's going on? This one is beyond my depth. I, I guess so. <laughs> <laughs> we heard about kind of the negative things. I mean, is kind of the best perks of flying, you know, like, is it the non-rev? Like, what's your favorite perk of your two different roles there as a pilot?
1: Well, for me, I get to do what I love. I love flying the C 130. I love flying the 767. I just love flying in general. The fact that I get paid to do something that almost seems like a hobby. I mean, it doesn't seem like a job when I'm actually flying. All the other administrative stuff that's kind of work. But, you know, that's what I like. The fact that I get to travel, I've been blessed to go to 105 different countries, mostly on, you know, the Navy's dime. The fact that I get to fly a fleet uh, that goes all over Europe. I try every single year to fly to every single European destination that my fleet flies to, which is quite a number of countries. So just the fact that I get to do that, it's still amazing five years into it on the airline side and 18 years into it on the Navy side that I get to do what I do.
0: So can I sneak in here and just ask, you've noted that you're a 1K. You've noted that, and I don't know if you mentioned other status as well. I know as someone with similar restrictions when I have to travel for work, sometimes you have to really play to, to to be able to get the airline that you want. So I imagine that you might have other status uh, on other airlines. When you try to fly, or, or do you fly non-rev? And if you do, does that status impact your I'll say experience, maybe not your seniority and being able to make the particular flight. And then number two, do you find that because you've got that status and because you're in the miles and points game that you use that non-rev ability with the same frequency as somebody who might not be playing the miles and points game?
1: Yeah. So that's a really good question. There are a couple of different aspects to it. So I've got 1K status with United. I've been executive platinum for, I think, 19 straight years now with American. I've got platinum status on Delta. I don't know how long that will last. So I'm lucky to have all those statuses. But when you non-rev and you're strictly non-revving, the status is pretty much meaningless. It doesn't get you any benefit whatsoever, regardless of which airline. The nice thing though is that both of the legacy carriers that i've worked for, they have discount tickets that employees can use that do give you all the benefits of having the status do let you earn you know miles and spend towards uh, earning more status so I do that a lot, and uh, sometimes they can be very advantageous because they don't have advanced purchase requirements necessarily. The fares are quite reasonable, especially for premium cabin international and I will say that I still. I love a great premium cabin redemption. I love flying a and A. I I love flying J L. So I still do a lot of that, but having the non-rev option to fall back on if I can't find the last minute award space is really kind of nice.
0: Did I hear you correctly that you can actually get a discounted premium space as well? Yeah. Rather than hoping that status or non-rev gets you into a premium cabin, you actually can get a discounted employee business class or first class fare?
1: You can, absolutely. And it counts towards, you know, earning status as well, just like a regular paid ticket. It's essentially just a paid ticket at a certain amount of discount.
2: Where do wow. I sign up? <laughs> 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 you got to start from the bottom, Trevor. You got to start with a regional carrier, I think.
0: Oh, I've tried. I'm too old for that. <laughs> you, know, you
2: know, speaking of regional carriers, you know, there's one up in the Northwest that, that seems to have a lot of craziness going on lately. You know, this is our friend uh, Horizon, you know, partner of Alaska Airlines. They, I guess in the past year or two, they've had quite a few incidents of interestingness, haven't they?
1: They have, especially uh, recently they were in the news for uh, not a great reason. And I know it's caused a lot of concern amongst the general public about what's going on inside the flight deck and jump seating. And is that really safe and sustainable?
2: It just sounds like such a weird situation. I mean, it's kind of funny. Like, we've just been having so many of these very, very strange, isolated things that probably don't happen, you know, like, but once a decade or two decades or whatever, but they seem to be happening more frequently lately. I wonder what's going on. Is there something in the water?
1: No, I think pilots are human, right? And- mm mm-hmm. What I think we really need to do is get serious about uh, pilot mental health. You look at all the required disclosures, any sort of medical appointment that I have ultimately has to be disclosed uh, when mm. I do my annual uh, medical flight physical. And what could even be just a mild anxiety or depression, something that somebody is trying to responsibly treat at a very you know low level through with mental health professionals could result in them being grounded for months or years until the FAA can adjudicate uh, their case and determine that they're fit to fly. So unfortunately, that really prevents pilots from disclosing things. And it's not just mental health. Uh, There was a survey recently that showed that 56% of pilots had declined medical treatment uh, just for fear Uh. of having to deal with the FAA and fear of losing their source of livelihood for months or years. And, you know, we need to change that.
2: I would agree. I think that has a lot of unintended consequences. It and does, and I
1: look at what we do in the military. I've got sailors who work for me right now and if they disclose they have a mental health issue, we're going to get them the care that they need. We're not going to prevent them from working on a plane for years while it, you know, adjudicates itself through this giant bureaucracy.
0: You know, that's one of the many things where the military actually does it better than we do on the commercial side. It sounds like <laughs> credit, you know, to the service, you know, leading the way, you know. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And there's that. still
1: room for growth. I mean, uh, there's a new act called the Brandon Act, which unfortunately, you know, a, a sailor had to commit suicide in order to have this act be named after him. But ultimately, if if I've got a service member who needs mental health, I'm going to see to it that they get that health. And because of that, there's less uh, fear of reprisal. There's less fear that uh, they're going to get in trouble for just trying to get the
0: help that they should get. And hopefully less stigma as well. Exactly.
2: So, you know, the main line of Horizon, you know, Alaska, they have another amazing route, don't they? The uh, the Alaska oh, Milk Run. Have you been able to do that one at all?
1: I have not, but I have done portions of that. I used to fly P3s, EP3s out of Whidbey Island, which is all the way north in the Pacific Northwest. So sometimes we'd be lucky enough to be able to go take a trainer flight and go up to Alaska and bounce in some of the fields like Hetchikan and Juneau and other places. I believe that milk run goes to. And then I remember I was on a layover once in Anchorage. It was a Navy layover. It was like a two-day layover. And at this time, I don't know what it is now, but I think you could get intra-Alaska a war ticket for like 5,000 miles. It was something ridiculously cheap. So I went all the way up. I did, uh, went up to Prudhoe Bay, went over to Barrow, had a long layover in Barrow, got to do a tour there, and then flew back to Anchorage. So it was like an awesome day of just hopping around Alaska that I, I really enjoyed.
2: Yeah. I don't think I've done the actual milk run, but I've done Juno. What did I do? Juno, Sitka, Ketchikan, Anchorage, I think. So some of it.
0: Yeah, I think the best I've I've gotten up to was Anchorage, and to be honest with you, that's probably a little. I'm more the islands guy. I'm not really the snow and you know Alaska guy. (laughs) I'm probably going to do it at some point in my life. Just from an Avgeek standpoint, I almost wonder, and I'm putting you guys both on the spot here. Are there other of those types of experiences? It's funny because we talk about the island hopper, the and the milk run on the boat side because you, you know me, I have to bring in you know the boats every so often. We used to have the bagel run, and we had a separate one. And this is back when I was running passenger ferries up and down Fire Island that would actually go to each island or each island community, I should say, and clear the old payphones. <laughs> so you'd bring, you know, a bell, I think it was bell telecom or whatever, whatever bell, baby bell it was, a technician, and you'd stop at every beach. Are there any other of those i know that's kind of a random data point right but are there any other of those sort of hopper type flights that you're aware of whether it's in the US or overseas that's on your list to be able to you know kind of you know add to your flight uh, flight map
1: maybe none of those hopper flights but there's still so many places i want to explore the pacific is just so big and uh, so many of these small little islands that i'd love to get to that i've not been able to while i've been in the navy so that's Going to be something once I have a little bit more free time uh, that I'm going to try to explore. Same thing, the Aleutian Islands. I've been lucky enough to fly a couple of trips, Navy trips, up there. We have a great trip every year. We actually fly EOD teams to go blow up these riverways in Adak, Alaska, that kind of get clogged with uh, lumber and everything over the winter time. So I love flying up to Adak, and I'd love. I've been to uh, Shemia, which is just about as remote as you can possibly get in the U.S. So just getting to explore places like that, Kodiak, Alaska, is another place I really do enjoy. I think there's just beauty. One thing I find beautiful is just obscurity and remoteness. doesn't have to be cold or warm necessarily. So those are some of the trips that I try to pick up now that I've only got a couple of years left of uh, flying in the Navy.
0: That's incredible. I mean, the variety of flying in the Navy, I mean, I don't think that we commonly think about some of those random things. I mean, you know, like the EOD team in this remote place, just to ensure that, you know, I think you said a river flows freely. Do you do a lot of international kind of engagement? You know, do you get to some of those types of experiences overseas? I know you said you've been doing a fair bit of North Asia, but any kind of unique experiences or I dare say travel stories that you could share from, you know, international flying for the Navy?
1: One thing I love about the Navy C-130 is the C-130 in general is such a versatile aircraft. The amount of cargo it can carry, its ability to land in relatively short fields with the amount of cargo it has is incredible. So that's something that the Navy uses. And we do a lot of community outreach that I don't think really gets the credit or isn't recognized as much as it should be. So every summer, I usually spend a month or two out in Japan And while I'm out there, we're doing Navy missions all across Southeast Asia. Really, we're taking CB units that are going to go build a school somewhere, doing community outreach. So Papua New Guinea, for example, will fly into a relatively small field. We'll drop off a bunch of Navy CBs who are going to go construct a building for a community. We'll come back a week later, pick them up. Had a chance to go to a field in Vietnam I didn't even know existed this summer. And I think we were the first Navy, U.S. Navy C-130 that's been there in probably 30 years. And all the locals came out and were taking uh, photos of us, even the immigration people People all wanted a photo with the plane. Parts of the Philippines. We fly to a lot of remote fields in the Philippines, which I love because it's challenging flying. It's something I don't get to do with the airline, but it's also very rewarding when you see what we're doing to help these smaller communities. So those are some experiences that you know I, I think I'm going to look back on when I'm done flying the Navy is kind of the most rewarding things that I've gotten to do.
0: Oh man, that just sounds so fun. You know, challenging, but the fact that you've done it. Not only, you know, is that a feather in your cap, but you did it for such a great reason and a great purpose.
1: Yeah, and I think just a lot of people lose sight of all the great uh, community relations and all the great things of the Pacific partnerships that we have with so many nations that the Navy is doing really humanitarian work.
2: I mean, I guess part of the reason for that is you know, or one of the results of that is just you know, just how friendly you know that part of the world is to the U.S. You know, we have so many allies and partners out there. I mean, it's it's kind of interesting, you know, how a lot of that I think is that outreach and that community outreach that you talked about. You know, it really pays dividends, I think, in a way in sort of the soft power of the United States, right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I'm not naive. There's a strategic reason why we're doing this, and of course, like you said, soft <laughs> power. But you know, there's other countries that are have significant influence or trying to influence these much smaller island nations so that any chance that we have to do good is just a win i think.
2: Yep. So you know, you talked about the C130s. I'm curious, you know, what are some of your favorite things about flying 757s versus 767s? You know, I mean they're I mean it's interesting how they're both such, you know, completely different aircraft and yet, you know, you you have the rating on one, you have the rating on the other, right?
1: Yeah, they're completely different and even Between the 767s that I fly, it's uh, the 767-400. If you look at the history of how that was designed, I mean, it's Mm -hmm. essentially a 777. The flight deck is a 777 flight deck. It was initially designed to be a common type rating with the 777, but uh, Delta Airlines was able to influence that a little bit and influence Boeing. So it became a common type rating with the 767. So Delta didn't have to pay their pilots more. So it's kind of interesting how that plane evolved. But you know the main difference between the seven fifty seven and sixty seven. The fifty seven is like a sports car. The plane is That's so hear, overpowered. Right? Yeah, um, yeah, just it's an incredible plane. I think it's next to the seven forty seven, probably the best plane Boeing's ever designed. What they should have done is just made a a new composite seven fifty seven, and that would have solved all of the issues that. that we're seeing now. But yeah. you just look at the performance; it's almost kind of like a C one thirty. Its short field performance is exceptional. The fact that you have a plane that can take off out of Bogota, fully loaded, but can also do a transatlantic flight. Admittedly, not greatly, but just you look at how diverse the flying is on the 757 and how many different missions it can do. It's really incredible. And it's just a fun plane to fly. Flying a 7.6, it's kind of like driving a Cadillac. I mean, it's got all this <laughs> hydraulic power. It's it's very smooth, but you really, you get the feeling you're flying. Uh, you have to fly seven 7.5 quite a bit differently
0: than the 7.6.
2: You got the Corvette and you got the Caddy. I got it. That's that. It's kind of what I thought, but I'm glad you're confirming what I thought.
0: You know, it's interesting because the seven five seven was my favorite to fly in United when I was a a heavy United flyer. In fact, I think it was seat seven D. Was it seat seven D or seven E? That was just the best seat in economy. You know, you're right by two L. Well, I suppose two R. I should say, and then you know that aircraft in general had more business class seats too, which was kind of a benefit. And it's kind of a shame because, you know, the 737-900 just doesn't, you know, while it probably takes just about, it probably takes almost comparable passengers, it's just not the same. And it's definitely far from the uh, 757 experience.
1: Yeah. And you look at the 757-300 and it is just a beautiful plane. It is so long and so elegant. It just is. I mean, they call it the flying pencil, Mm -hmm. but it's just, I really like how it looks.
2: Well, I mean, it's a testament to the longevity of the 757, right? I mean, there's so many of these 20-year-old 757s out there, you know, with all the major airlines, except maybe what is an American, the one that has probably the least at this point? I know they Delta retired probably... all
1: of their 7.5s. A lot of them yeah. got converted to cargo. Some are still <clears> sitting in the desert. But yeah, Americans stopped flying them.
2: Yeah, but you know, I'm pretty sure Delta is going to, you know, wring every single last bit of life out of theirs. It
0: seems well, like didn't... United's
2: doing the same, right?
0: Aren't they doing the same thing on the MD-80s or – do they still have the? Uh, I think seven two sevens. No, it's the seven two sevens that they got from Airtran. You mean seven one sevens? seven one sevens. I'm sorry. Yes, I think they've announced
2: the retirement of the seven one sevens. Actually, on the Delta side, to just put our AV geek uh, hats on here, I, I think for our listeners, so hopefully they aren't going to turn off right now. But <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, well, it's just interesting. Do they even have crew rest on seven fives?
1: They don't, so they block off uh, passenger seats to allow for crew rest,
0: which is an ideal. Does that ever factor in for you? I mean, I'd have to believe probably not because you're flying 757s and 767s, but <laughs> I guess I'm thinking like a 767, you're probably talking you know, to Brazil. You're not getting to Asia, are you?
1: No. Generally, for the seven sixes, it's going to be Europe, domestic, Hawaii, uh, South America. Yeah.
2: Is that a blocked off seat on the 76s as well because I think I've seen that on some 76s where they block off some some business seats or something.
1: There is, yeah, there's a curtain around uh, one of the seats that they use to block it off and it's quite comfortable and quiet.
0: Oh yeah, I think I've observed that on a couple of different aircraft. In fact, one time I can't remember if we've shared this story on uh
2: I think we did. Uh,
0: <laughs> because an uh, American was flying an A330 from Dublin to Philly. It was short enough that they didn't need to have the crew rest seat. And so I ended up sitting in that crew rest seat because I was a very last minute ad. They weren't kind enough to pull the curtain around for me though. <laughs> that probably would have been very, very nice.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. Some of the flights that we fly, depending on the time of the year, will be augmented, meaning an additional pilot or unaugmented, just two pilots. And again, the winter time with the heavier winds coming back from... Europe, We have to add an additional pilot, but the same route in the summertime, we'll just go with two pilots. And a lot of the airline pilots hate that unaugmented overnight flying. For me, I actually like those very much because they tend to be shorter trips to Europe. Flying a C-130 normally is just two pilots. We'll go on for, you know, up to 18-hour crew day. So flying a 7.6 for six hours on augmented doesn't seem that arduous to me, and they tend to be longer layovers in that case. So I, I always pick up those trips, fortunately.
2: I think this whole discussion has been really amazing for me because I feel like we were able to kind of peek behind the curtain a little bit, you know, and and see some of the things, especially, you know, from that Miles and Points AV geek perspective. So I was just curious, do you have any kind of, you know, with all this new information you have, do you have any interesting advice for kind of the the Miles and Points nerds out there, uh, you know, now that you have some of the information that you have?
1: That's a great question. I think one thing I would recommend is just, use your miles. I've gotten away from hoarding them. I see how all the programs just continually devalue. There's so much point inflation that just find it. a great redemption that works for you and do it. Don't wait for the perfect redemption cuz that might never come and you don't know how much your miles going to be worth tomorrow or the next day.
2: I love that advice because you know, you know our podcast Travel Stories. I just feel like that's I think one of the things that we focus on a little bit more is, you know, we're a lot about the Redemption and not as much about the the acquisition. You know, honestly, I think the redemption part is the fun part.
0: There you go. I I think you just covered our mission statement. (laughs) To burn our miles for meaningful travel and the stories that come from it. it. It's true. It is. So, Brander, I just have to say thank you so much. This has been just an incredible, incredible episode, an incredible opportunity to have you on here. You are a friend of the podcast. You are welcome on any time that you would like to. We've talked so much about your professional side, and perhaps sometime in the future, we could have you back on and and talk about some of your amazing trips. I know that you're a big fan of the Maldives, for example, which I am now a fanboy of. (laughs)
2: That's (laughs) surprising. Trevor Malty's <laughs> fanboy is not something that I was thinking was going to happen on this podcast.
1: Yeah, I would love yeah. that. Yeah, I'm, I'm I'm actually going in January. I've got Q Suite booked. I'm super excited. Oh, so jealous. I think I kind of joke, but now that I half the meals I eat seem to be business class uh, meals, I get a little bit less excited about uh, in flight dining. But I'm still whenever I have a Q Suites booking, i I'm, I'm pretty excited.
2: Uh, occupational uh, but, hazard of a pilot, huh? You know, <laughs> not not being as excited about business class meals. I guess that is one good or maybe bad occupational hazard.
1: But uh, it's been an honor to be uh, on the podcast. Like I said, I'm uh, also a big listener and uh, it's it's just been awesome to see where this has uh, gone over the last year or so.
0: Thank you so much. And yes, this has been exciting. And the opportunities to have folks like you on the podcast and, and share your story is uh, is perhaps the greatest benefit and the greatest honor for us. With that said, I think we'll call the show here and thank you again, Brander, for joining us, and also thank our listeners for joining us as we hope you do every episode.
2: If you've enjoyed this episode, consider becoming a Mylonomics Patreon member and get access to even more in depth miles, points, and travel
0: content. Thanks, everybody.